This is Neil Jackson, filmmaker, actor, songwriter, and uh, you are listening to the number one podcast, Atomic Podcast. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast. And here is your host of the show, Efren Guzman. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Neil Jackson. Neil, how are you this afternoon, I should say? I'm fantastic, Efren. Thank you, mate. Yeah, it's afternoon for me. I'm in, I'm in London at the moment. It's, it's ten past two, so you're up at the, at the crack of dawn. I <laughs> really appreciate it. Not, not a problem. I appreciate you giving me the time. Um, how is the temperature in London? Because you know you get the misconception that there's it's always rain. Just right now. I mean, yeah. we we had a little we had a little raining spell um, last week, but today today is um, 26, 27 degrees, which I think equates to kind of uh, the mid eighties. Yeah. Um, which in London always feels a lot warmer because we have a lot of humidity here. Yeah. So um, we can we can have early seventies and it feel incredibly warm. So, uh, yeah, it's lovely. London in the sunshine is one of my favorite places uh, just because it's it's green all year round just because we get so much rain over here and you just get used to the fact that it's raining. So when the sun comes out, everybody gets a smile on their face and the summer dresses come out and shorts come out. (laughs) Everybody goes to the beer gardens and sits and has a few pints in the sunshine. It's lovely. Um, Is the misconception of teas and crumpets in the afternoon false? You know how people say, oh, we have teas in the afternoon. No, it's not false. I actually, I'm I'm sitting here with a cup of tea in front of me right now. I made a cup of tea. uh, (laughs) Redness to sit and have this conversation. So no, we, we very much enjoy our tea over here as well oh i'm also a huge doctor who fan are you a doctor who fan or are you up yes i I very much admire the show yeah uh would you ever want to be a doctor oh christ yeah i think everybody would love to be a doctor i mean it'd be be one of those fun kind of releases to have that kind of a, a, a project to be a part of would be amazing um i mean what i love that they do with doctor who's um, especially with the choices of who plays the Doctor, is they're very left field choices. I mean, you got um, David Tennant, who was um, phenomenal um, as, as, as one of the sort of first of the reincarnation of the Doctors when they brought the series back, what, 10, uh, 15, 18 years ago? And he was phenomenal, and then to go on from here and have like, like Peter Capaldi now, it's just like nobody expected that choice, and he's just genius. I mean, they, they've really gone for fantastic seasons. British actors who have trod the boards all across the West End and are just phenomenal at their craft and they just like the touch paper of their creativity and just let them go and it's fascinating to watch what these guys do with the quirky character. Yeah. Um, speaking of Doctor Who real quick, um, do you think it's time for a female Doctor or you don't think the gender should change? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that think that whatever works creatively, regardless of gender, race, creed, anything else like that, I don't think you. I, I don't think choices should be made purely because of um, sort of uh, um, wanting to fit some agenda. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we should have a female doctor just because it would be cool to have a female doctor. I don't think we should have a um, a female president just because it's cool to have a female president. It mm-hmm. should always be the person that's right for the job. But that said, we shouldn't be bigoted and just close the doors and say only white male James Bond. Yeah. I, think that, uh, I, I think that whoever's the perfect choice for James Bond, whether it be a, a woman, a man, somebody from um, a completely different ethnic background, it would be fascinating to see because the roles work regardless of those choices. It just should just be the right person for the job. Um, so, yeah, whether it be Doctor Who or James Bond or 
Superman for that matter. It doesn't really matter to me as long as the character is honored and the the, the right person gets the role. Yeah. All right. And speaking of you, um, how was your upbringing like? Um, how was it growing up in London? Like, um, how was I mean, your family I up, life? I grew up in a place called Luton, which is actually about twenty miles north of London. Okay. Uh, Luton is, a, is is an interesting place, which anybody who's from there who has spent any time there will tell you. It's it's a wonderful sort of working class environment that was uh, very much like Detroit in America, uh, where it was built on the car industry. Yeah. Um, we had Vauxhall and Ford car firms there, so people came from London, blue collar workers to go up there and work to um, uh, work in the factories, and then the factories went to Europe. So suddenly the car industry stopped, and you had a lot of disenfranchised, unemployed blue collar workers. So it, it it made for a very interesting life, and I loved it as I was growing up there. Um, it's very much a background that I'm very proud of. Um, I'm one of four boys, wow. uh, the second eldest of four boys, so. It, we were always a very physical family. Uh, I mean, my, my dad was um, a professional footballer, semi-professional and professional football. Um, that's the British football. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, my mum was um, a very high-level athlete. She, she was in the um, Great Britain team for the Olympics for swimming. Um, so sports was always something that was a very huge part of us, and obviously four boys. Well, was I think it was the best way for my mum to get us to burn off steam was just to kick us out of the house with a ball and say, <laughs> don't come back until you're exhausted. Uh, was there ever like competition with the brothers or was there ever... Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> Loads of competition. But, you know, like, good com- we, there, there was never animosity. Um, it was always kind of like we pushed each other to just just go a little harder. I mean, my older brother was a phenomenal, still is a phenomenal sportsman. He's, he's now uh, in, the, in the Royal Air Force. He's in, he's in the military and he's um, a fighter pilot. Wow. And um, my brothers are all still master in sports. One of my brothers is a professional boxer and a personal trainer, and the other one teaches physical education in schools. Still very physical. And so, yeah, my older brother was the captain of the rugby team, and he had the uh, fastest time and the, the uh, cross country runs and things like that. So there was always a benchmark that was set for me that I had to attain or beat. So. I've never been hugely competitive against other people. I've always been competitive against myself, but with the, obviously with brothers, when you move up into the next year and you find out that your brother's idolized by the PE teacher for being the fastest runner and you know, they put that that pressure on your shoulders, um, you sink or swim. So uh, I think all four of us were very competitive. I don't, you know what I'm saying? I don't care what people say. Parents usually do have favorites. Do you feel like there was a favorite of the bunch? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, that, like, or someone who gets parents. favored more, like someone. Oh, you know, get, you know how they say, like, all right, um, he deserves this more because he doesn't get a shot or something like that. Nothing like that. I think it's in general. No, I think obviously in specifics that, that that's that's valid. That um, you know, when it comes to one arena, one person will get favored more than the other. But uh, I think that's just natural in, in in small areas. But in general, it's not kind of like. It's not kind of like one was loved or favoured more. We, we, I mean, our parents are phenomenal. Um, yeah. And, uh, and uh, they pushed us as hard as we wanted to be pushed. But if we didn't want to be pushed, they backed off. They, 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 they gave us a, a wonderful start in life. Okay. Um, what was your biggest influence into going into acting? Um, to be honest, the, 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 the initiation of the idea of going into acting was really just because I was a terrible student. I was, <laughs> I was always a reluctant people yeah. and um, I was the sort of classic class clown and always wanted to make everybody else laugh and not really taking the classes seriously 
And when I was in school and I was 16 years old, it was mandatory, was I 16 or 14 years old, sorry, it was mandatory to um, do a language. And I loved music. And you were only allowed to do one arts subject. And you had to do one language, German or French. So um, I went to French and I got kicked out of my French class by the, the teacher and got told I then had to do German. So I went to the German class and I got kicked out of the German class. And the head teacher uh, of the school was wonderful when he said he'll let me go into drama um, because I, I kept hearing from friends of mine that were doing drama and it was the best class, it was fun, you kind of did nothing, you just played the entire time. It just seemed like a great way of wasting a session as opposed to sitting down in a classroom and mm -hmm. being taught German. Um, so he thankfully let me do drama as well as music, so I have two arts options. But I only really wanted to go in there just because it seemed like a great way to DOS. It seemed like a way to just have fun with my mates and not really sit and do studies. But what I realised, I had an amazing teacher, drama teacher called Nigel Williams who now teaches at um, a school in Los Angeles mm -hmm. um, he he gave me a, he, we, we do school plays constantly and he gave me a love of school plays and it was fun to just kind of do these little school plays and little moments where you get laughs or reactions and, and I'm one of those classic actors that um, I loved the idea of getting praise which was probably a praise I felt that I didn't necessarily get um, in other areas of my life, being one of four boys and, and uh, having a very competitive background and all that kind of stuff, um, to stand on stage and get the applause was something that I craved, the validation. It's since changed from that, but that was the initiation. And I did, uh, we did a play, which was um, Charles Dickens' Hard Times, uh, which is a fantastic play, and I played this circus master called Sleary. And I never took it seriously. And we were a week... We were a week into rehearsals, and I think we had another four days of rehearsals before we did the first play. And I hadn't learned my lines, and I wasn't really taking it seriously. And there was this fantastic monologue, and I just hadn't learned any of it. And we went to one uh, rehearsal, and Mr. Williams, Nigel Williams, took, uh, he, he said, We're cutting all of the part. We're, we're going to get rid of most of the part. We're only going to do the bits that you know. And he punished me by um, removing it all. And it suddenly put this fire in my belly that I wanted to show him I wanted to prove to him that I could do it and I went home and I stayed up all night and I worked on the, the monologue and I worked on everything and I got it down and I made my choices and I came back the next day and when it came to the point where this monologue was which he'd cut and I said can I do it and he was like rolled his eyes and I did it <laughs> and I did it with this characterization and I put thoughts in there and I didn't realize but that was the first time that I was acting I'd made conscious choices about the way I'd say certain words, the way I'd flavor and color them, the way that I would move my body to emphasize something. Mm -hmm. And the achievement of that and realizing that there was a lot to st at stake, the fact that he, he was going to take the part away from me gave me a huge respect for it. And that was the transition from theater just being something fun, it was play, to suddenly going, oh, this is really interesting. This is something that I actually enjoyed the creative outlet of achieving something with a character that I didn't think I was capable of doing. And that kind of set me on the path at the age of 16. Wow. So, you know, you've competed in boxing as well. You know, you have championships yeah. under your belt. You've done so many things. It's, you know, you're very versatile. Um, is it is it hard to, like, focus on one thing? Or are you the type of person that wants to put his, you know, his hands in everything and try something out to see if he could conquer it? Um, it's a good question. 
question. I mean, I, I don't think it's hard to focus on one thing. I, I, I have I have a little bit of OCD in me. I um, when I when I set my mind to a task, whether it be um, you know working on boxing and trying to become the best boxer I possibly can, or working on my acting career, or music, or whatever it happens to be, I focus on it with um, an almost blind passion. Um, sometimes um, forget to kind of come up for air uh, a little bit through that. Um, pursuit, but um, it's never—I mean—it's never really been a plan that way. It's, it's not like I planned the, the the life that I had. I was—I was, I was really lucky that I, at the age of seventeen, um, after doing the acting work for a little while in school, um, you had to go to careers advice in my school and, and sit down with a woman in an office and talk about the realistic options that you want to pursue for the rest of your life as you start making big choices um, about universities and things like that. And I said to her that I wanted to be an actor, and she literally laughed at me. And <laughs> oh, once man. she finished chuckling, we decided to figure out what my realistic um, career should be. And as I said, my older brother was already on the path to being in the Royal Air Force. I had a friend of mine who was in the Army, mm-hmm. so I decided I wanted to be a Royal Marine. Yeah, I was always physical, always trained. At that point, I wasn't boxing at the time, but I was doing martial arts heavily, and I'd won an English championship in, in martial art, Korean martial art called Tang Soo Do. And I was like, oh, I'll become a Royal Marine, and I'll, I'll, I'll do that, and that'll be fantastic. So they sent me to Limston, which is an area in Dorset in England, where they have the um, the tryouts to become a, a, a an officer. It was called the Potential Officers Course. And I did that. It was a three-day course, three course, and I failed the course. Um, I failed the course. They said I was 17. Um, I'm too young to become an officer. They really like people to come on board once you've got a uh, degree. So go and get a degree, come back after three years, and uh, they'd love to um, reassess me. So my entire plan was to go to university for three years just to get a degree to then join Marines. So I went and did a sports degree and went to the first place that gave me an offer in the university to study sports with my plan to do three years, and that was it. And then life on the ocean waves in the Royal Marines. And a month into being in university, I was in Cardiff in Wales. A month in, I was like, what the hell do I want to be in the Royal Marines for? It just, it didn't fit my personality, but I kind of been shepherded into this idea by this careers advice lady, but I was doing my degree, so I had three years ahead of me, so I didn't need to think about what my plan was going to be. And a month later, I had a friend of mine who was a boxer in the army, and he said, there's a um, there's a, a national competition, um, all of the universities in the UK get together um, and compete in different sports. So the uh, British University's Boxing Championship was coming up in a month. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, why didn't I apply? So I applied and I found a gym and I trained for three weeks and we went along and I was really lucky that I, I won the gold in, um, in, light head, in light middle weight. And that made me go, wow, boxing's cool. I think I want to be a boxer now. Yeah. So everything I did was pursuing being a boxer I found a gym and trained and I fought probably every month six weeks I had a I had a fight and fought for Wales and defended my British title again and did some other stuff and just loved it um, but I was moving further and further away from sort of my soul my soul as an artist and what I wanted to shoot I was I, I was a doorman for years I worked as a bouncer in some clubs in Cardiff and I was boxing so everything was this sort of physical pursuit, but nothing was creative pursuit. Um, I was very lucky that as I finished my degree, still having no idea what I wanted to do with life, um, I got offered a scholarship at my university to 
do a master's in sports science at my university if I carried on boxing for the college because I'd won a load of medals for them. And I was like, okay, I didn't know what I want to do, so fine, I'll, I'll do another two years of study. And it was then that I just realized I was unhappy. I was boxing, I was working on the door, I was fighting a lot, um, mm -hmm. and um, it just it didn't feed my soul. And I remember the only time that I really felt happy in my soul was when I was acting in school plays. So... Uh, I didn't know how to get back into acting or to try acting. And I heard about the, the, the Welsh, uh, there's a university in Wales, that's the, the arts university, the Welsh College of Music and Drama. They were having open tryouts for a musical. I was like, okay, I'll go along and I'll do a monologue and I'll sing a song and uh, they'll love me and they'll put me in one of their musicals and this will be the beginning of my acting career. And I went along with a monologue that I did years ago when I was studying theatre in school and I, I didn't get 30 seconds into it when the guy stopped me. He said, you're untrained, um, you, you haven't got a career in acting, and didn't let me finish. And that lit the fire in my belly again, because that, that I'll show you kind of side to my personality. Mm -hmm. was like, fine, okay. So um, I decided to write a play, contacted a friend of mine, I said, oh, you know what, I'll write a play, I'll finance it, I'll put it in a small theatre just outside of London, and then agents will come and see it, of course they will, and then they'll see what a good actor I am and then that'll be the beginning of my acting career and I'll show this guy that said I've got no hope and the play ended up becoming a musical and I spent six months working on that with a friend of mine who's a musician in London and we came third in a national competition for unsolicited musicals a producer heard about it in London mm -hmm. we did a prepared read-through for this producer um, and then he called me in his office on the Monday and said uh, the musical needs work which it did it was the first thing I'd ever written and he said, but why did you write it? And I said, I wrote it to become an actor. Um, and he used to be a teacher at RADA, which is the main acting school in London, one of the main ones, um, and had set up his own acting course, I think 15 years before that. And he said, I'll give you a scholarship to come onto my um, acting course. So by hook and by crook, I ended up in London doing a part-time acting course every weekend for two years, um, thanks to the script that I'd written. And uh, I graduated from that 16, 16 years ago. Wow. So it was this weird kind of windy road. Of, thanks to boxing, it all kind of led me to this point. But it was never a plan. It wasn't like I'm going to concentrate on boxing and I really want to do and I really want to do. It's always been when something sparks this excitement in me, I pursue that until either I don't become excited by it or it proves that it's not the right path. So basically, it was like a goal to lead to another goal to lead to another goal, basically, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way life is. I mean, yeah. we're, we're none of us, very few of us, I think, when we look back on the, the course of our life, it's a direct journey. Mm -hmm. I mean, my brother, my oldest brother, is actually the only one that I've ever, the only person I've ever known. He, he, when he was 10 years old, wanted to fly planes and always had uh, posters of fighter jets. And now, um, at 42, I think he's 43, um, he's doing exactly that. And he's had this one path, but I never did, certainly. And mm -hmm. where I've lived, the lives that I've lived, the adventures I've had have never been part of some overarching design. It's always been, I've fallen into something and I've pursued it ardently. And then, much like with acting, once, once I made my decision that I wanted to act, that, that became my overarching goal and everything was put through that prism of how do I make this happen? How do I get better? How do I make this my career? 
So getting into acting, you know, you've done a lot of roles in the UK. Um, what was your big break that got you to come to America? Uh, my big break was a, there was a film called um, Alexander, which was about Alexander the Great. Um, it was a film made by Oliver Stone. had um, Colin Farrell as Alexander, Angelina Jolie playing his mum. And um, I was cast by Oliver Stone to be the general of Alexander's infantry in that, um, which was a huge thing for me. I'd, I'd only been acting about three and a half years. I graduated from my course, been professionally acting for about three and a half years. Um, I only about a year before the audition actually stopped doing as my acting coach used to say civilian work I was a personal <laughs> trainer yeah. to fund myself but acting had started funding me and uh, suddenly I found myself on a set in, in Marrakesh in Morocco um, with these huge A-list stars doing a six month shoot for a massive movie that was Uber Millions and mm. uh, we finished that shoot and got invited um, eight months later, whatever it was, to um, Los Angeles for the premiere of the film. And I'd never been to America before and didn't really plan on moving to America or living in America for uh, um, any length of time. But as with the other areas of my life, I went along uh, with kind of open mind and I had an agent there already and the agent said stay for um, two weeks after the premiere and let us show you what we can do for you over here. And in those two weeks, I probably had more auditions than I had in six months in the UK. Just And I was just like, I, I need to be here. Mm -hmm. So I packed up and moved to Los Angeles for six months just to give it a tryout. And that ended up being almost 12 years. Wow. And then you made it on to a TV series after that, after coming over here? Yeah, I, um, I, I arrived. Uh, I did a, I did a, um, a film, uh, a playing a vampire, um, which was great fun. And then straight off the back of that one ended up being another vampire. They did a TV adaptation of the film Blade, the, the web film, the comic book Blade, yeah. um, which uh, was done by New Line, which was phenomenal. And that was six months in Vancouver, which was huge for me, my career, for my education, everything. And um, that cemented me staying in Los Angeles. Uh, we unfortunately only got one season of that out, but that... Then I ended up, I, I wrote and, and acted in a feature film. Shortly after that, went back to Morocco. And me and Stephen Dorff um, acted in this film, a thriller called The Passage. And um, yeah, that was me. That was that was me living in Los Angeles. It was kind of like, oh, this is the place for my career. Yeah. It's kind of the Blade connection right there with Stephen Dorff was in a Blade film. And you also was yeah, in a Blade exactly. series, you know. Yeah, we laughed about that when we were on the set. We got um, two, I was the lead vampire in the series. He was the lead vampire in the first film. Um, I'm going back to Blade on um, the series. I thought it was really, really well done, and um, I know I think it was probably yeah, you're welcome, and it was probably expensive. I guess that's why it didn't get picked up for a second season, correct? Who knows? Who knows why it didn't get picked up? I mean, it's it's one of those things I talked about with some of the writers. I talked about with um, the other actors. I personally think it was ahead of its time. Yeah. I mean, this is a series that was ten, eleven years ago. Yeah. Um, comic book um, movies weren't really coming you know the, we would had the x-men but um the comic book kind of um explosion hadn't really happened in in films and definitely not in tv and we were just ahead of the curve it was a very smart very yeah. intelligent show that also had a lot of great action and i think if it was made today it would be a no-brainer it's the sort of thing that would run five six seven seasons it was also on a network over there called spike tv yeah. and it was spike tv's very first scripted 
yeah. um, show. They'd never done an original scripted show. So who knows why it didn't get picked up. Um, I think that it was just ahead of its time and um, and didn't quite get the audience or the chance that it would have had nowadays. It would have been a big hit. Mm. But um, I had an amazing time on it. I mean, they gave me just... An incredible character to play, Marcus Van Skyver, who was just <laughs> yeah, brutal. So much fun, yeah, yeah just yeah. so much fun. Just a, he's just a hyper intelligent, megalomaniacal, um, charming, violent. Yeah, yeah just they, they gave. And this is this is what I love about a lot of the roles I've got to play with Headless Horseman, with um, um, Abraham Van Brunt as well and, and several other characters when you get to play a villain who's not a villain because most villains aren't most I don't think anybody who's a villain would sit down and kind of rub their hands together and tweak their moustache and go I'm evil yeah. I think most people who are like that are just misunderstood or misguided yeah. or whatever mm. it happens to be and so to be able to play those colours in a TV show uh, with characters like Marcus Van Skyver and Abraham Van Brunt yeah. um, who don't believe that they're in the wrong and actually getting to show that to the audience so the audience become conflicted that was one of the most fun things about Sleepy Hollow for me was getting tweets and emails and, and responses from fans of the show who were starting to root for the Headless Horseman they were so conflicted about what <laughs> yeah. and how they were feeling about Abraham Van Brunt about the fact that he was forced into this position and it wasn't his fault and he he's not this overarching evil character that they thought he was um, as the Headless Horseman. He's actually got soul and wit and um, heart and suddenly people are becoming conflicted, which is just, that's just fantastic storytelling. Yeah, it's amazing. And I'm also, you know, you're a filmmaker as well. You know, you've done short films out there. Um, you have one that's, um, I believe, is it out now or has it been out? We just, we, yeah, we just finished. It was, it was the first uh, off ramp. It's yeah. the first, uh, the first one I've directed. I um, kind of came about. I, I, I've written a feature film that we're we're setting up to shoot later this year. And um, as we were starting to set up the feature film, uh, which is called After the Lights, which is set in the world of boxing, a lot of kind of stories from my time when I was in the sport. My brother's a professional boxer. His time in the sport. Um, I knew that I needed to wet my beak a little bit as a director and I had a, a window of time. So I came up with this story off ramp, which is um, a heartbreaking story about a, um, a homeless war vet who is begging on an off ramp, which you see all too often in Los Angeles, especially. Mm -hmm. I mean, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, a quarter of all the homeless people in the US live in Los Angeles, wow. which is a kind of crazy statistic. Um, and um, for me, it was about giving a face to this in, these invisible people and just telling the story of one homeless person that hopefully through watching the story, and uh, a few people have watched it, have had this reaction, it changes your perspective of looking at all homeless people was kind of my overarching idea. And mm -hmm. it's turned out beautifully. We're out to film festivals at the moment. So um, it will be released to the public probably towards the end of the year. But right now we're letting it have its festival life and seeing where it ends up. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm originally from New York City and um, you see homeless people all the time in subways or uh, walking around or begging for money or, you know, they'll have signs that says need money for beer research or something like that. So a lot of like people, I think, become jaded with that. Like, OK, oh, you just want money for drugs or you want money for this. But, you know, there's yeah. there's homeless people out there that 
usually that are trying to get their act together. But, you know, when you see a lot of people with like, you know, crazy signs, it spoils it for everybody else. Cause everyone like us, you know, everybody becomes jaded by that. So it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, it's human nature. I think that, yeah. I mean, if, if you're homeless and you're just trying to get by, whatever you do to get by, which can almost make a gimmick of yourself and your situation, because the sad thing is, and they've done they've done studies on it. They've done social studies on somebody standing there saying um, need need money to pay uh, for food for my child will get less money than somebody who writes a comedy one saying uh, one month give me dollars for weed. Um, and people almost kind of applaud the humour and the honesty in quotations yeah. than the raw painful stuff because it's harder to look at. I mean, I met I met and talked to so many homeless people that broke my heart and gave me such a different perspective. There was one guy I spoke to who, um, he lost the house in his divorce. He was, um, this is his side of the story, he lost the house in the divorce, was living in his car while he was working in his job. The um, owner of his company found out he was sleeping in his car and didn't like that as an image for the company, so he lost his um, job. Without his job, he couldn't keep the payments on his car, so he lost his car, so he's now on the street, unable to get himself back out of this. He is unable to fight against the loss of his job because he has no address, therefore the courts cannot um, take up his case. So he's left in this limbo. And there were lots of people I spoke to who were victims of circumstances, who, yes, choices that they made, the circumstances they maybe put themselves in, but it's not all the alcoholics who um, just want to you know, lay about, which is the stereotype. There's a lot of unfortunate, sad circumstances that yeah. people. I don't think anybody chooses to live on the street as a, as a when you have better options. It's people who are have worked, don't have the options. And for me, it was about just changing, at least in my mind, the perspective of looking at people. I, I, I stood on an off ramp as a, just as research. I just put on some old ripped clothes and stood on an off-ramp, actually the off-ramp we shot at. Uh, one Saturday morning, I stood there from 7 o'clock until 9 o'clock. For two hours, I stood on the off-ramp. Um, I didn't want to lie, um, so I made up a sign that just said, um, all I want is a smile. So I didn't want to say homeless, I didn't want to lie, I didn't want to deceive people. And it was amazing when people gave me money, and whatever money I gave, I then went and found actual homeless people, and I gave the money to them. It was amazing when people gave me money, because it was just... The generosity broke my heart, but what broke my heart more was people who actively tried not to look at you. Yeah. The people who would stiffen their necks and look straight ahead, even though they clearly saw you. Yeah. Seeing seeing you would mean that they then have to acknowledge a side of some, themselves and their humanity and then their guilt of feeling like they have to try to help or the fact they have to apologize and say, I can't. And the fact that people actively tried not to see me therefore made me feel worthless and I was only there for a couple of hours made me feel worthless and made me feel invisible and isolated from society but the people who they didn't have to give me money they didn't have to do anything some people just looked at me and smiled yeah. as if to say I see you you're not invisible you have value you're a human being and I had to stop myself from crying so many times because by crying I wasn't engaged in what I was there for, which was research, experiential research to make me understand the subject matter of my film. But it broke my heart on so many levels. There was there was one woman, there was one woman who stopped a car who, um, it, it was a red light, there was about four cars in the thing. The third car up was a woman in a broken down car, a, uh, a Mexican woman. And she called me over, she opened up her purse and she emptied her purse into my hands. And there was probably in coins, 
It's probably about five or six dollars there. Wow. Coins were spilling out of my hand onto the road. Wow. And she grabbed my hand and said, look after myself. I said, I will. I thanked her. Um, she drove off. Um, and um, I bent down to pick up the coins that had fallen onto the road. And the car behind me was an Escalade. And there was a guy that was sitting in the car who was honking his horn for me to get out of his way. So wow. the stark contrast between one woman who gave me everything that was in her purse that I then gave to an actual homeless person later on. But the person behind, he didn't know that I wasn't homeless. And he's honking me to get out of his way because I'm holding his day up by five seconds. And it was just this disparity. And it was just like, we're all people all going through our journeys. And when, as we said earlier on, nobody, I believe nobody really when you look back on your life, nobody can really plan the journey that we've been on. And I don't think anybody, when they're a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 40-year-old, wakes up one day and goes, you know what, I want to live on the streets. I want to ask for the generosity of other people while I stand on an off-ramp sucking in carbon monoxide just so I can get enough pennies to make some food for the day. And the fact that somebody can not see that other human being as a human being and have empathy for them broke my heart and hopefully is reflected in the film uh, that I made that will um, hopefully just shine a little light on one person's story and as a result maybe change the way some people view people Wow, I'm really interested in seeing this I can't wait for its release No, oh, thank you, I mean if, if people, there's, there's a trailer that's available that I put on my website, so if you go to neiljackson.me um, there's a trailer that's on the website with some more information, some photos about it and There'll be information on the website the moment we start getting to film festivals and we get to celebrate the good news. Um, and it'll also be released on the website. So yeah, neiljackson.me, you can see a, the trailer and hear a little bit more about it. And um, before I let you go, I didn't know you was a musician as well. Um, how long you been um, like singing like professionally like that? Like You have albums. Like I was like, wow, I was yeah, impressed, I, you know? Uh, I, uh, I was 23 years old and I... For my birthday, I asked my dad if he could get me a nylon string guitar, and he got me a nylon string guitar. And I, I've always, I've always written music. I was always in bands as a kid, but I could never, like I said, I wrote a musical, but I couldn't play music. Um, I was always putting my creativity through the the, the, the sort of fingers of others, um, pianist friends who would put music to my lyrics and things like that. And I always wanted to be able to write my own music. So um, I got this guitar when I was 23, and. Um, in my mind, if I could play Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven, mm. then I could play guitar. <laughs> so I, every night I would sit, you know, to the chagrin of my uh, my flatmates, just playing the, the opening, dun, 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 yeah. dun, of, of um, Tears in Heaven, until eventually, after about three or four weeks, I got, I got it and I could play it, and play it to a good standard. And then I started writing music, and then as a result, started going out, and, and I was doing open mic nights, and then... From there, I got gigs and was playing original music. But at that point, my acting career started taking off. And um, then Alexander came and I moved to America. And so everything got put on the back burner. And I had a, a sad um, but wonderful experience. And um, several years ago, I was doing a pilot for NBC. Um, the pilot was at that point called Notorious. I can't remember. I think it changed it deception yeah. but um i did the pilot um i had an amazing time shooting it in new york and upstate new york mm -hmm. i came back from shooting it and um a few 
you know, a month or so later, we found out that it had been picked up by NBC for a full order, which was wonderful, but they were recasting my character. Oh. Um, so everybody was coming back but my character. Um, wow. And they were recasting my role because whatever reasons they felt like they had. And I was devastated because in one moment I found out amazing news that I've got employment for the next six, eight months, which is what every actor dreams of, a sense of stability and some money. And then in a heartbeat, that was gone away, but not just gone away, like the front page of the, the um, not the front page, but in the um, the, the trades the, the following day was Neil Jackson 5 from NBC show. And it just broke my heart. And I knew that I needed to recapture my creativity from that moment. Otherwise, it would just be a, a, an anvil around my neck. So I decided... I'd, been, I'd written a lot of songs, I've been playing a lot, and I was like, you know what, it's time to record an album. So I contacted a friend of mine who's a, a producer back in Britain, a guy called Nick Malin, who's a phenomenal music producer, and just said, um, can I come in the studio and spend a month with you just working on some of my songs and, and, and turn it into an album? And that's what we did. I came back to Britain and was in the studio every day with him, just me and him, um, playing through my songs and working on the other arrangements and just creating an 11-song album of my songs where I was the one that was creating it, I was financing it, I was putting it together, every choice went through me, and it just, it was like, it was like sorbet for my creative soul, just being able to immerse myself away, not audition, not be part of the film industry, but just do something that was my creative passion for my creative means, not knowing if anybody was going to like it, appreciate it, or anything else like that. And thankfully, I finished the album. I did a couple of gigs um, to promote it. And thanks to my fans on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, um, people have really responded to the album. And as a result, I did an EP, and I'm now in the process of recording another one. It's just another little side of my creativity. I mean, it was, it was a funny thing. I remember when I did the album. And I was doing interviews for it with some um, English um, media outlets and uh, a couple of radio shows. And the one question everybody asked was, so is that it now? No more acting. You're going to be a musician. <laughs> yeah. And it was, this funny, it was this funny question the first time I heard it because it was one of those things I just hadn't thought, thought of. But of course, everyone likes to pigeonhole you. Mm -hmm. And that's the nature of every industry and it's the nature of humanity. That we, we, we like to give people labels because it makes it easier for our heads to understand. He's an actor. He's a director, he's a writer, he's a musician. But the fact that you can be an actor or a director or a writer and a musician kind of blows people's minds that you can skate between all things. And for me, I think creativity isn't one thing or another. It's just you find a medium that gives an outlet for that that best suits you. Whether you happen to be painting with acrylics or you like sculpting doesn't mean that you aren't able to express yourself in other mediums it just means that that's the primary outlet and as a creative artist I, I love telling stories and I, I tell stories in whatever way suits the story that is to be told whether it be a short film or a feature film or a television show or a song um, or a poem um, there are a million ways to tell stories and, and the story that you're telling dictates the medium yeah. but uh, and I'm very lucky that I get to, to do that in many Oh, but do you have a passion? I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is you have a passion for everything equally. If you can act, you can act. If you can sing, you can sing. If you can filmmake all the time, you'll do that. Like could you like is it the love is equal for all your different um activities? It's equal and different. I mean, I guess it comes back to what you were saying about my brothers. I mean, it's just it's yeah. like um 
each one gives me something different and I love the thing that it gives me. Okay. But at the same point, I miss the things that I get from the other stuff. For example, acting. I love acting. Acting was kind of like the first... Well, writing came before acting, but uh, acting was has been my strongest pursuit in the arts. And I love getting a character and getting my teeth into a character and figuring out how I want to play them and then nailing it on set and feeling like I've done my job. And that I've, But ultimately, my job is to service the character and service the director's vision. I'm, I'm an interpretive artist in that sense, in the same way that a violinist is pe- picking up the violin and, and, is, and is playing a piece by Tchaikovsky. They're interpreting Tchaikovsky, but they're not creating Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. And so... I love being an interpretive artist as an actor and um, stretching those sides of myself. But at the same point, I love being a creative artist and then sitting down with a blank piece of paper and creating a character and creating a moment. And then more, more so, I love the fact that I can then take that written piece and now as a director that I've started, look at all the other elements that bring that world to life. You know, you create a world on the page, but the, the, it has no form. How do you give form to that formless creation? And I love them all equally for what they give me, but I also am aware that I can't get everything from one thing. So, which is why I constantly express myself in different areas. I mean, music, there's, there's no more immediate shortcut to the soul than music, I don't think. You can, you can play a piece and immediately you have an emotional response. Where that, you know, whatever that response is, it touches your soul. And for me, sometimes I just need to sit down and play my guitar and express a feeling that I'm having or a story that I want to tell or a moment through music. And that's largely what my first album was, was a personal expression of a lot of deep things that I wanted to get out. Um, and I couldn't have done that in any other way. I couldn't have done it in poetry and I couldn't have done it in filmically. It had to be through music. So... It's a very good question, but one that I think it's about finding a creative outlet for whatever I need to express at a moment, and different avenues allow me to do that, mm-hmm. and I love them equally for that. Neil, um, what is your personal motto? Wow, that's a that's a very good question. I don't know. I, I don't think I've really thought about that. My personal motto, I mean, never give up is, is, mm-hmm. is very much a, uh, a part of it. I, I, don't, I don't think that anybody has the right to tell you that something isn't possible um, because all that is is an opinion put through the prism of their own experiences. Mm-hmm. So I, I love taking advice and I love listening to people who have tried stuff and, and learning from them, but nothing is impossible. Um, so I guess... Yeah, that would be my personal motto. Nothing is possible. Um, and so it's um, just a question of what you want to make possible. And as long as you have the the desire, the drive, the gumption, the passion to make that happen, you can make the impossible possible. Hundred percent of the time. Right. And how would you describe yourself in terms of attitude and personality? Um, I think I'm a very positive person. Mm-hmm. I um, uh, as as attributed to that mantra uh, yeah. my motto um, I'm a very positive person I, I have a lot of serious sides to me um, but I'm also I'm, I'm also ridiculous and stupid and silly <laughs> and um, and I love silly humour and I love people who, who don't take themselves seriously and I don't take my t- myself too seriously um, so um, yeah I'm I, I, I'm, I'm a, 
I'm a hot mess most of the time. So uh, <laughs> it depends on what day and what moment you catch me. Is there any role that's out there um, left that you would love to do, like a, a comedy or like a straight out comedy? Oh, there's or so like many. That? There's so many roles I'd love to play. I mean, there's there's not really specific ones. Yeah. I mean, it would be, I mean, of course, every every British-born male actor would love to be James Bond. Um, yeah. But I would love. I would like. I want to have as diverse a career as possible. Mm-hmm. And each time I get a chance to flex, like I just did an amazing TV series called Absentia, which uh, was for Sony. We shot that in Bulgaria. Um, we're actually going out to the Monte Carlo Television Festival, where it's premiering next month. Um, and in that, I got to play this amazing character called Jack, who is an alcoholic. And I've never played a character like that before. Mm-hmm. And researching. Um, the disease, alcoholism, and how it affects different people, and then interpreting that of how it can affect this character, but doing it with compassion and not shying away from the pain and the self-loathing was just a dark and challenging and rich character to get my teeth into. And similarly, I would love to play a, um, a character who's broad comedy and is just um, ludicrous, uh, you know, Jim Carrey-type, Role. I'd love to. I'd love to flex my my acting muscles in as many different ways as possible, and constantly stretch myself, and hope that when I look back at the tapestry of my life, I can say that I've had as diverse a career as possible. Um, have you had any regrets in life? Um, minor regrets. I, I think I have minor regrets. I've one regret. I was. Um, I remember. Going to, there was a friend of mine called David Green had his uh, birthday party. He was 12 years old, and we went to his house for his birthday party. And his mother had made a cheesecake from scratch, and I don't think she'd ever made one before. Mm-hmm. And um, we sat down for dessert, and all the other kids were about to have the cheesecake when the brother, his brother came in, and he bought these cream horns, which were just filled pastry filled with cream, which were just delectable. Yeah. And suddenly everybody, when they're given, given the option, they went for the cream horn. And um, I saw his mother's disappointment, so I asked for cheesecake. And I had a slice of cheesecake, and uh, I was violently sick from it. Um, (laughs) And I used to think, I used to think the motto there was always go for the cream horn. Um, (laughs) But actually, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a regret anymore because I, I would much rather always go for the choice that isn't as hedonistic and selfish, but is more about. Um, what's right in the moment and it was right in that moment I had the cheesecake even though it made me violently sick um, so yeah I don't I don't know because I, I haven't got the big regrets in my life I'm very lucky that I, I stand by my choices and I take responsibility for what I've done I've always learned I've always learned grown from every single one as we all do not to sort of wax lyrical uh, about it so there's not really anything I look back on and go you know what, I should have done that. I was yeah. an idiot. Because it's always taken me down a different path. You know, I, don't, I could regret the fact that I didn't keep my hand up when I should have done and I got knocked out in my boxing match. Yeah. And um, um, and that boxing, that, that knockout essentially ended my boxing career. Because uh, if I'd have won that, I would have gone to the Commonwealth Games and I would have carried on fighting for a long while. But being knocked out meant that I stopped and went, you know what, I want to become an actor. And I wouldn't have stopped. So my life is thanks to the mistakes that I've made. Oh. Um, so I can't really regret any of them, oh. even 
even the cheesecake. <laughs> That's a funny story. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, um, what are your fans like? They're amazing. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm very lucky with the with the fans that I've got, and, and I feel very blessed. They've um, they've found me and rooted me out um, somehow, um, and uh, and have stuck with me. I mean. When I when I decided to take a little hiatus and do the music, they stuck with me through that, and as evidenced by the fact that they bought the um, they bought the album and really supported the music and watched the YouTube videos. And when I needed support in setting up off ramp, um, and I set up a um, a GoFundMe page, the fans rallied around again and really helped to finance that. Um, I'm eternally grateful to the support that I've been given from the people who, for one reason or another, respect or like the thing that I get to do, that I get to call a job. Uh, I'm very, very grateful to them. And um, my final question for you is, what would the Neil Jackson of today tell the Neil Jackson of yesterday? Don't work so hard. I think that's what I'd tell him. Uh, He wouldn't listen, and uh, I'd, I'd accept that. But um, every artist, I believe, is only as good as the experiences that they have, because we're all storytellers, and you can only tell you can only tell a story experientially. And it's one thing to kind of closet myself away, as I did for a large for a bit period of time, and just concentrate on my art, becoming a better actor, becoming a better director, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, a better writer. But um, we're only as good as the experiences we've had, and I would have told myself to loosen up the reins a little bit, take a few more holidays to fantastic places, and and, and experience more. Wow! Um, thank you so much, Neil, for your time. Um, uh, my pleasure. Um, plug your social media. Plug any upcoming events you have. Plug any shows people can see you in. If you have anything coming up. Um, you can. Uh, the Neil Jackson. So the Neil Jackson is all my social media. So you can find me on. Um, Twitter and Instagram with that Neil Jackson Music on uh, YouTube if you go there you can see and uh, listen to music there's some music videos for some of the songs that I've done there and neiljackson.me is my website that's kind of the hub to find out everything and if you go there you'll be able to see all about Off Ramp my other short films um, and um, other stuff that's coming up so yeah neiljackson.me um, I heard a sample of Kryptonite I really like it it's really cool Oh, thank you, brother. No, yeah, no I, 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 yeah, I love that um, song. It was um, a, a fantastic producer in um, in America. We sat down, um, a guy called Jesse Glick. We sat down, and uh, I'd written that song, and uh, uh, we crafted it into a really nice pop song, um, which was a sort of deviation away from the first album. It was more pop vibe, and I really, I really like the way it turned out. Thank you. Oh, can you give me a little sample yourself? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, not right now. If I, if, I, if I had my guitar, I my guitar's upstairs. I could, I could run up four flights of stairs to go get the guitar. But um, yeah, no, you know, I'll, I'll leave my acapella crooning. People can just listen to me uh, if they go to the website. <laughs> oh, okay. You see, you, you saved it for the people so they can hear it. That's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, thank you very much, Neil. It was lovely talking to you, mate. Thanks so much for making the time and getting up and crack the door to, to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. And I hope everybody out there was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one, folks.